Good morning once again, and we are continuing our series through Mark's Gospel here this morning, and we're going to be looking uh, together at the verses that we read, and the message title today and, and kind of the emphasis that we're going to uh, put on the message today is uh, the unforgivable sin, because this is uh, the place where Jesus makes reference to that. And it, it's interesting when you think about um, the, the fact that Jesus mentions an unforgivable sin. It, it's interesting, especially because the very essence of the gospel that was expressed in uh, prophetic hope long before Jesus came into the world, it was, you know, that sin was going to be taken care of. Sin uh, would be forgiven. Uh, take, take, for example, um, the Lord speaking through Isaiah the prophet. Uh, he said this, Come, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. So this, this is a prophetic word. God is talking about, you know, th this is what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to cleanse sin. And then, of course, Jesus comes. And so after the fact, the Apostle John, looking back on uh, what Jesus accomplished on the cross, uh, he said this, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses a person from all sin. And yet, Jesus, the one who offered one sacrifice for sin forever and sat down at God's right hand, he's the one who says here in these verses, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Wow, think of that. Jesus said that. So it's, it's quite interesting, really, to consider it. You have the whole you know, thrust of the prophetic message pointing toward what God would ultimately do through Christ in forgiving sins. But Jesus says that there is a sin that is unforgivable. So that's what we're going to consider today. But, but before we do that, um, let's take a moment and just want to look at a few things from the passage that uh, we read together today. So first thing I want you to notice is uh, regarding Jesus here, we see um, in verses 20 and 21 that as, as he went out about his ministry, it says that his own people, which basically means his family, that they heard about what he was doing. They went out to lay hold of him for they said he is out of his mind. Think about that. So my, the point that I want us to, to understand here today is Jesus had a fully human experience to the point that he was rejected by his own family. And the reason I bring that up is because sometimes we think of Jesus and, and we view him just through the lens of his deity. Now, we who are Christians, we who know what the Bible says, we know that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh, but, but sometimes that causes us to miss the human experience that he had. Yes, he was God who came in the flesh, but he was also 100% human. And so he has like the full human experience here of 
being rejected by his family. Did you know that Jesus had brothers and sisters? Um, The other gospels tell us that uh, he had four brothers and he had at least two sisters because the sisters are referred to in the plural, sisters. We don't know the name, uh, names of his sisters, but we do know the names of his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And what we also know is that they would not believe in Jesus until after his death and resurrection. Then they did believe in him. And we know, uh, of course, that, that James and Judas did because uh, James was the, the leader in the early church in Jerusalem. He's the author of the uh, epistle of James. And Judas, who's the brother of James, is the author of the little uh, letter from Jude. And they were the brothers of the Lord. But in his, in his ministry and in his life, there in the home, he was basically rejected by his family. So when he went out and began his ministry, his family said, he's lost his mind. We have got to go uh, save him from himself is basically what they went out to do. So his family says he's lost his mind. Second thing, look at this. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub and by the ruler of demons, he cast out demons. So his family says he's nuts. The religious establishment says he's, he's doing this by the power of the devil. So they did very literally demonize Jesus. And of course, when people have no legitimate means of contending with someone they disagree with, they then revert to slander. And that's what they're doing. They're slandering Jesus. This is what we call an ad hominem attack. Ad hominem comes from the Latin, which means to the person. And the idea is that you go for the person, you attack the person. We see that today in our crazy um, vitriolic cultural moment. Uh, if you can't beat somebody in an argument, if you don't have a sufficient argument to disprove them, then you just go after them as a person. You slander them. You call into question their character. And that's exactly what was happening to Jesus. These men, they would do anything to discredit Jesus. The third thing that I want us to see real quickly is that finally in the verses that we read together, we see that um, the only way to connect with God for anybody is through, um, as, it, as it says here, that they, um, Jesus said, they that do the will of God. So the, his family came, they were there, Uh, The assumption was that they had some kind of priority because of the family connection. Jesus, your, your, your mother and your brothers are here. And Jesus said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And then he looked around at those with him and said, these are my mother and brothers for those who uh, do the will of God. Or as Luke tells us, uh, those who hear God's word and do it, they are my mother and brothers and sisters. So point is this, there's no, um, our our relationship with God isn't based 
on anything like family connections, national connections, racial connections. None of those things matter. The only way a person connects with God is through doing God's will, which in the context here means basically believing in Jesus. And of course, that's the big picture of scripture, right? All people, regardless of family background, regardless of nationality, regardless of race, all people are welcomed into the family of God. All people come the same way through putting their faith in Jesus. So those three things, I just wanted to touch on those real quick, but I want to come back to uh, the issue here in verses 22 through 30. So let me just read over those verses again, and then we'll focus in on verses 28 through 30. But so the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he cast out demons. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men. And whatever blasphemies they may utter, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. So blasphemy. Now remember, they often accuse Jesus of blasphemy. When he uh, said to the man, son, your sins are forgiven, they said, this is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God? And so they often were doing that. But now Jesus says to them, he warns that they're on the verge of blaspheming the spirit, which he says is an unforgivable sin. So first of all, blasphemy, believe it or not, blasphemy is, is very much a current issue in our world. Yesterday, the Irish people, voted in a referendum to uh, repeal the blasphemy laws that were on the books in the nation that went back to the 1800s. And, and yesterday they had the referendum vote. And although it was a small voter turnout because it was a, it was a presidential vote connected to, uh, and this vote was tacked onto it, the presidential vote in Ireland is different than uh, what we would have here, because the president there is more just a figurehead. He's not really, doesn't really have any political power. So they had a presidential vote yesterday, but they tacked this vote onto it. It was a small turnout, but 70% of the population that did turn out for the vote, they said, we got to get these blasphemy laws off the book. Now, most people didn't even know those blasphemy laws existed. But what happened is some time ago, the comedian, Stephen Fry, he's a comedian and an actor, uh, he was being interviewed and he said some, some pretty blasphemous kinds of things, as atheists often will do. And somebody who knew that there were blasphemy laws on the book, they said he ought to be prosecuted. So this brought the whole thing up and this caused a referendum to come forth. And uh, I frankly agree that that law should have been repealed. My point is just to tell you that this is current stuff. So that happened yesterday, but last week, the European 
court of human rights upheld a woman's conviction. So a woman was convicted some time ago by the Austrian government. Uh, She was convicted of an abusive attack on the prophet of Islam. So this woman was a lecturer. She was speaking in, you know, some kind of a forum, and she made statements regarding Muhammad that, uh, you know, people in Islam consider to be blasphemous. So she was convicted of being guilty, but she appealed it to the European Court of Human Rights, and they upheld her conviction. So according to the European Court of Human Rights, uh, it is against European law to Uh, speak evil of the prophet of Islam. Um, In, uh, I I was just talking to John Chubik earlier today and we've just been traveling together. He was with me in the Middle East and he just got back home. Uh, But he was telling me a mutual friend of ours who's a Pakistani was telling him, you know, in Pakistan, you might see this on the news occasionally where they've got these super intense blasphemy Laws and people all the time are being condemned for blasphemy there. But John was telling me that a friend of ours who's a Pakistani and a believer was telling him that in Pakistan, if you're a Christian and you even mention the name Muhammad, unless you add onto it um, something like blessed be he, if you just use his name without pronouncing some sort of a blessing on his name, you are guilty of blaspheming the prophet and subject to death. This is the world we live in. Did you know that um, one uh, quarter of the world's nations still have blasphemy laws on their book? And of course, if you think of the Islamic nations, that would just... um, be par for the course. They, they would all have them, but other, other nations have them as well, as we could see that Ireland did until yesterday. So my point is just to show us that this stuff we're reading about here, as is always the case, the Bible is, it never goes out of date. It's always relevant. But the thing that we're talking about here is not like these other cases that we're just mentioning. Jesus is talking about something different here. He's talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So here's the first question. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, let me tell you what it is not before I tell you what it is. It is not an irreverent or slanderous word or rant against God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, a prophet, the Bible. It is not that according to the Bible. So as a matter of fact, Jesus even mentions here, although it's not clarified in Mark, it's clarified in, um, I, th- I think it's Matthew or Luke, it's clarified that, that Jesus says that, that even uh, blasphemies against him personally would be forgiven. So this, uh, this, this blasphemy of the Spirit is not Uh, speaking slanderously or irreverently. Uh, A person who does that uh, can still be forgiven and doesn't come into that category of of committing an unforgivable sin. So what is the blasphemy of the Spirit? Well, in order to understand what it is, you kind of have to just, you know, look at 
all of the scripture on what, what the scripture teaches about what can't be forgiven. And here's really what it comes down to. The blasphemy of the spirit is really the wholesale rejection of the work of the spirit, which is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment and lead people to salvation in Christ. That's the work of the spirit. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin because they do not believe in me. So that's the great sin. The great sin is not believing in Jesus. It's not receiving Jesus. The, the blasphemy of the spirit is to resist the spirit's efforts to convict us of sin and to bring us to that place of salvation. Hebrews chapter 10 def- defines it like this. It's defined as trampling underfoot the son of God, counting the blood of the covenant by which we were sanctified a common thing and insulting the spirit of grace. So that's really, that's a description of what Jesus is talking about here. Trampling underfoot the son of God. So in other words, it's a complete disregard for Christ, for the blood that he shed for us, and for the work of the spirit to bring us to repentance. It's a a complete disregard of that. It's, It's a total indifference toward it. That's what it is that, is being talked about here. Now, notice though, because it might seem like I'm contradicting what the passage itself says, uh, but I'll show you in a moment I'm not, um, because it it says, uh, so Jesus said, um, he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said, Mark is adding, because they said he has an unclean spirit. So Mark says that it was what they said that uh, caused Jesus to warn them about the blasphemy of the spirit. And I just said a moment ago, it's not saying a word or going on a rant. So which is it? Well, here's the thing. You see, it's what they said was revealing where their hearts were. That's, that's what Mark is telling us here it revealed that their hearts were set in immovable opposition to the convicting work of the Spirit. You see, they're right there and they are witnessing the work of the Spirit through Jesus. Jesus is healing people. Jesus is, you know, restoring and blessing and, you know, he's doing all of this stuff. And they said, he's doing that by the power of the devil. And that revealed that their hearts were so resistant to the work of the spirit that they would even attribute the work of the spirit to Satan. So you see, it was these words, you know, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It was these words that indicated where their heart was. And so they were near to that, that point of crossing over the line that would be the point of no return. That's what Jesus is warning about here. Now, the passage doesn't even tell us that they had done it yet, but Jesus is warning that they're getting close to that line. Uh, Because Jesus goes on and he continues to appeal to them. He continues to challenge them. He continues to uh, seek to draw them to himself. But 
if they persist, then they will prove that they have blasphemed the Spirit through their rejection of him. So that brings us to what Jesus spoke of here as the unforgivable sin. There's only one sin that's unforgivable. As the passage says here, it's, Jesus said it, assuredly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. So whatever sin you can think of, however horrible, however evil, however vile, however perverted, whatever you can think of, it can all be forgiven. Because Christ died for all of those sins. But the one thing that can't be forgiven is to reject the one who can forgive. You see, that's the, that's the whole thing. The, the forgiveness of all of these sins is bound up in the blood of Jesus Christ. As John tells us that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The scripture tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. Now, let me say this. Some people would just say, well, you know, I don't need the blood of Jesus to be forgiven. I can, I can just be forgiven by asking God to forgive me. There, there are plenty of people that think that. There are plenty of religions that teach that. But yet, the Bible both Old and New Testament are very clear that sin cannot be atoned for, forgiven, cleansed, apart from the shedding of blood. The Old Testament, uh, the context of that was the animal sacrifices, but those animal sacrifices were all pointing toward the sacrifice that Christ would make when he came. And so the, the, the New Testament understanding, the biblical understanding really is summed up well in some of the words from that, that great hymn, Rock of Ages. And there's a stanza there that reads like this. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's commands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. That's biblical theology right there. Uh, you know, keep trying to keep the law, shedding tears for my failure to do so. None of that can atone. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can atone for sin. So the unforgivable sin is to refuse the only one who can forgive you. That's it. That's the unforgivable sin. Now, I want to say a word to those, and maybe you're here in this room today, or maybe you're listening to this through another means, but I want to say a word to those who have feared that perhaps they have committed the unpardonable sin. Because I have talked to many people over the years who have thought that very thing. I have talked to people uh, where it has ended up uh, having extensive uh, sessions with them uh, to try to show them that they hadn't done it. I've spoken to people in conversation on a, on a phone. I've answered questions on the radio regarding this. So if there's anybody 
who's listening to me right now, anybody in this room, or, or let's say it another way, and you're fearful that you have done this, the very fact that you're listening, the very fact that you're here, the very fact that you would even be concerned about it is an indicator that you haven't done it. So just know that. If you're worried that you've done it, you haven't done it. Because the person who's done it, guess what? They're not worried about it. They couldn't care less. You see, what we're describing here is a total and complete indifference to this issue of salvation. Just, it's, it's not even on their radar. They, they don't care in the slightest. Like the, the Hebrews passage says, it is trampling underfoot the Son of God. The Son of God, who's he? Doesn't matter, just walk right over him. The blood that Jesus said, shed, what's that? They count it as a common thing. It's no different than the blood of a cat. It's no different than, uh, you know, any other substance that's spilled out. It's, it's just, it's meaningless. And the spirit, I'm not concerned about that. See, that's the person who's, if they're not there already, they're, they're drawing close to there. But, but the person who says, oh no, I, I think, and I, I've actually had people say to me, you know, well, I remember this one time years ago. I, you know, I was angry and I just said, uh, you know, blankety blank Holy Spirit. And I, I think I did it. No, you didn't do it. You did not do it because that's not what it is. And like I said, the fact that you're concerned shows that you didn't do it. But guess what, man? The devil, he loves this kind of stuff. And he loves those passages you know, the devil has favorite Bible verses. Did you know that? He has favorite. I'm sure if he has his own copy, they're underlined. And I'm sure when he's training the other demons, he says, okay, these are your key verses. Use these. And when somebody, you know, slips and says something that's blasphemous, be, get right there and tell them that when you sin willfully, there's, that's it. You sin willfully, and there's no further sacrifice for sin. And you know, many people fall for it. Many people believe it, and many people fall into a state of condemnation, and they live in utter torment because they're fearful that they've done it. Like I said, simply, if you're concerned about it, you did not do it. Because the one who has done it has no concern. Now, Moving on to our third and, and final point here. In the very context itself, Jesus, he, he references eternal condemnation. He says, but the person um, who blasphemes against the spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Jesus said that hell is real and that people will go there. When Jesus speaks of eternal condemnation, that's what he's talking about. Condemnation, a synonym for condemnation is judgment. He's talking about eternal judgment. So Jesus Christ, <coughs> Jesus believed that hell was a real place. Jesus believed it. So if you don't believe in hell, then know this, you disregard what Jesus said, or you think Jesus was wrong. And listen, there are people that think that 
There's plenty of people that think that. But there are even people in the church who think that. You know, there's a big move currently in the church to really just disassociate from the idea of hell. And there's a ton of pressure on people who would, you know, really believe the Bible to reject the idea that there is such a place as hell. But know this, if you reject it, you reject a place that Jesus actually believed to be a real place. Uh, Some people would say, well, Jesus, you know, uh, he was uninformed. (laughs) I mean, you know, he lived a long time ago. They didn't know a lot of stuff back then. Well, who who knows more about hell today than they would have known back then? You know, where's the research? How How did they figure out there's no hell? It's wishful thinking. Some say, well, you know, Jesus just accommodated his generation. People thought there was a hell, so Jesus said, okay, I don't want to spoil their, you know, mess things up for them, so I'm just going to go along with it. Well, you know, if, if that's who Jesus is, we, we got a big problem. I don't, I don't think Jesus did that at all. Uh, Jesus here makes reference to eternal condemnation. So what is hell? Well, it's a place of judgment. And it's described in various ways in the Bible. Uh, on the one hand, it's described as outer darkness. In another, other places, it's, de- it's described as fire. It's described as unquenchable fire. Some people say, well, right there, we know it's not a real place because it can't be fire and darkness because you know if you have a fire, it's not dark, it's light. So that's a problem. Well, I don't know that that's really a problem, but let's just say that it is a problem. It very well could be that these are simply metaphors, but they're metaphors of something real. And what they are really metaphorically referring to is a place of unimaginable anguish and pain. That's what hell is. Hell is finally, and I I personally think this is the best way to understand and think about hell. Hell is finally separation from the glory and goodness of God with no hope of ever reversing the state. See, that's what it is. It's, it's really, in the end, it's separation from God. God says to those who have revolted against him, he says, depart from me, I never knew you. So it's, it's being cast out of the presence of God. Now, some people hearing that might think, well, good, that's fine. I don't want to be in the presence of that God anyway. So that's perfectly fine with me. You know, some people erroneously think that hell is the party place. It's the fun place. And heaven's the place where you go if you're just boring and stuffy and old-fashioned. And all your friends and all the cool people in history are going to be in hell. That's where I want to go. Delusional. Hell is separation from the glory and goodness of God. You see... Everything we know, every bit of goodness that we know about is, it it is because of God. So separation from God means that all good things are removed from you forever. All good things. Now, you know, some people say, uh, you know, forget this idea of hell, man, we're in hell now. Earth is hell. And there are definitely some hellish places on earth. 
No doubt about it. No doubt about it. But even in the most hellish place, there's still something good that can be found. There's still a glimmer. It, it might be the smallest little ray of, of hope, but, but it's there. But you see, hell, it's not there. It's absent from there, and it's absent from there forever. And so hell is separation from the glory and the goodness of God. Now, again, many today would say, I don't believe in a God who would cast people into hell. I refuse to believe in a God. And this, is, this rhetoric is ratcheted up, you know, pretty high these days. I mean, people, you know, where people might have felt this way in times past, people are much more um, free these days to just say it. They, they've been emboldened. They've been inspired by you know, certain people in the culture, you know, some of the outspoken atheists to just, just mock and ridicule and, and you know, just the, the very idea that there would be a God who would cast people into hell. But, you know, I, I honestly think that people say things and even hold views that they haven't totally thought through. Really, seriously. So let's, let's think through this. So a person says, I absolutely refuse to believe that there's a God who would cast people into hell. So I want to ask you this question. Do you believe in a judge who would send a criminal to prison? Is, is there any crime for which a person should be sentenced to prison? Oh, I would imagine that everyone would say, well, yes, of course there are. Well, let me take it a step further. Do you believe in a judge who would sentence a criminal to death? Now, for some people say, well, I don't know, that, that's bad. But I think, I think that everyone who has any genuine sense of justice would at a certain point concede that, yes, certain people deserve to be put to death. Adolf Eichmann, for example, the architect of the final solution, the final solution being we're going we're gonna, to you know, rid the world of the Jewish race. So, you know, the Nazis killed six million Jews. Adolf Eichmann was the architect of the final solution. The, 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 you know, Auschwitz, all of that, he, he uh, was the architect behind that. Now, Adolf Eichmann uh, did not die in the war. Uh, he was not captured. He escaped from Germany, and he ended up in Argentina and he took on a new identity and he was seeking to live out his life and enjoy the rest of his life there with this assumed identity. Now, the Israeli authorities, they had been searching for him for years. They got a tip that he was there in Argentina. And um, the, the movie that was recently uh, came out called Operation Finale. There have been several movies made about this particular event, but Operation Finale is the most recent one, uh, just tells the, tells the story of the Mossad agents who went into Argentina. They, they uh, captured Eichmann. They deported him, brought him back to Israel, put him on trial, and put him to death. Now, here's a man who was responsible for the death of millions and millions of people. So, 
would it have been right for him to be able to just walk away, sneak away, hide away, and live out his life in peace? Or was it right for the Israelis to do what they did? Or were the Israelis wrong for doing that? Well, I I personally think that anybody who really stops and thinks about this would have to say that, no, they were right. This guy deserved to die. I mean, come on, he's responsible for the death of millions of people. Okay. I think people, if they have a sense of justice at all, which I think we all do, uh, I, I think they would say he got what he deserved. So here's the question then. Why is it so hard to believe that there is a God who is also a judge who holds people accountable for their actions? Why is that hard to believe? I think if all we have to do is just take the next step. If, if we believe in justice here in this world, and if, if justice never prevails, if justice is never brought forth, we feel robbed, cheated, that's wrong, they got away with it, why would we think that that same thing wouldn't apply in the life to come? Now, you see, because if there's no God and no hell, then people like Eichmann's boss, Hitler, and people like Joseph Stalin, and people like Mao Zedong, and every other criminal dictator, murderer that's ever lived, if there is no future judgment, those guys basically got away with killing, murdering untold millions of people. So you might think they got away with it. I don't. I just simply refuse to believe that. I believe that they had to answer. Just like Eichmann had to answer to the Jewish people, those men they have to answer to God. And I think just logic itself, clear reasoning itself would would tell us that yes, of course that has to happen because we can't live in, in in a world of injustice. Now, everybody has a different idea of what justice is. You know, some people have the idea that justice is based on right and wrong that are rooted in the biblical understanding of what right and wrong are. And and people are convinced and convicted about that. And I am that very much. But, you know, other people reject the Bible. They reject uh, the, the morality of Scripture. They, in a sense, you know, they say anyway that they reject any absolute truth. They say everything's all relative. But the very people that say that, they are very passionate about certain issues and they're enraged that there's no justice in regard to those issues. So they really do believe in injustice. It's just, it's different, it's different topics that they're passionate about. But they, but we my point is this, we, we all have that in us. And so why do we have that? Well, the Bible says we're created in the image of God. So if we have that, if we understand that there is such a thing as justice, if we ourselves are disturbed at injustice, then why would we ever think for a moment that that, that wouldn't be the case with God as well? You see... Jesus says it is the case. 
Now, those who struggle with a God who sends people to hell, I think there's a few things they fail to grasp, and they're major things. Uh, Number one, they fail to grasp the holiness and righteousness of God. You see, God, the Bible says God is holy, which means, you know, the idea is purity, but the word actually means, it means other. So God is so much other than us. We are sinners, all of us, we're sinners. God is other than us. He, he's not like that. And because we're sinners, even though we might be passionate against certain sins, you know, we're, we're kind of um, easy on some other sins. The ones that we struggle with ourselves, we tend to have compassion on people who struggle with those things. The ones we don't struggle with, it's like, put them to death. Get rid of them. But, oh, no, those, leave those guys because, you know, I kind of got that issue myself. So, see, God doesn't have that. God, God, in, God is light. In him is no darkness. There is no darkness. He's holy and he's righteous. Everything God does is right. It's all right. So that's number one. Secondly, the other thing we fail to recognize is the sinfulness and evil of man. You know, let's face it. We just don't really think we're that bad. We really don't. I remember like 30 years ago, you know, thinking about these things and preaching on these things. And there's a doctrine that we would call the depravity of man, which is the doctrine that says, you know, we're all essentially evil. And, and I remember looking around at times and thinking, you know, well, I don't know. Everybody seems pretty decent, you know? I mean, you, certainly you could think of some examples of really bad people. I just named a few of them a moment ago. And you, you could think of others. Maybe they didn't commit mass murder, but they, you know, wreaked havoc on humanity and so forth. So, you know, we, we would kind of um, say, well, yeah, you know, there are some sinful, evil people, but most people are pretty good. But let's fast forward 30 years. Here we are today. Guess what? Wow, we're starting to realize that, wow, there's a lot more evil in people than I ever imagined. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're realizing, well, there's a lot more evil in me than I ever imagined. See, the reality is we're a lot more sinful than we'd ever want to believe. God said to the prophet Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above everything. It is desperately wicked, desperately wicked, incurably sick. And then he asked these words. Then he asked this question, who can know it? And then he says, I, the Lord, search the heart. The implication is you can't even know how evil you are. I can't even know the depth of my own depravity. I think I'm bad. I'm I'm way worse than I actually think I am. That's the reality. It's true. And look, I mean, just think of the past week. Just think of yesterday. So we saw this this person go into the synagogue in Pittsburgh yesterday uh, with an automatic weapon and just mow people down. And uh, earlier in the week, Uh, We saw a person uh, try to break into a church and he couldn't get into the church. So he went uh, down the road to the grocery store and shot up people in the grocery store, murdered them because they were black and he was white. And then, of course, we had the bomb thing this week. And, you know, all of that. Now, Now, some would say, well, yeah, granted, I mean, those people are crazy. Those, those are like some of the loonies. But it's, just not, it's not just limited to them. 
Remember a few weeks ago when we were uh, in our country, you know, we had a vacancy on the Supreme Court and there's, uh, you know, this man is brought forth and then all of a sudden, you know, everything seems to be going great. And then uh, somebody comes up with an accusation that he's nothing that he appears to be, that he's, you know, a horribly perverted person and that he's not fit for the job and a slander campaign like we've never seen against a, a public figure who has an impeccable track record until suddenly, uh, no, he's, he's really evil and we're going we're gonna to make sure everybody knows it. And I think it's been proven that he was falsely accused. But the, but the, the point is, all of that hatred directed. And what was, the, what was the real motivation, if we're honest? The motivation was, and the fear was expressed all the way along, this guy has the potential to overturn a law that allows us to kill human beings who are in the womb. And we want to keep doing that because... That is a right that we have. It's called a reproductive right, one that we invented. And it's for our convenience because uh, if we have these children, they're going to get in the way and make our lives difficult. And we want to have sex and we want to do what we want to do. And we don't want to have the responsibility for it. And this guy could mess that up. So let's try to destroy him. That's our culture. That's our world. That is what's really in the heart of people. And listen, we're not exempted or excluded from it. We have those same kind of tendencies. You know, at the, when the, the, the Second World War ended, um, you know, one, one of the things, and, and actually in Eichmann's um, trial, one of the things, and, and you know, the movie that was recently made, Operation Finale, uh, some people were really offended by the movie. And you know why they were offended? Because they felt like the movie made Eichmann too human. And in their minds, he's a monster. But the movie portrayed him, uh, you know, just like he was too normal. And the, the, the reality is, Many, many people that were complicit in the things surrounding the Holocaust and so forth, they were just normal, everyday, ordinary people who seemingly never would have done anything like that, but given the opportunity, they did do it. So you see, we underestimate the evil in our own hearts. And so we think there couldn't be a hell. Why would there be a hell? Because people are basically good. No, people are not basically good. And we're seeing that more and more. The third and final thing is that we fail to grasp the suffering and the death of Christ. See, what we fail to realize is that all of those vile, wicked, evil, perverted things that we're referring to, all of those things are the things that Jesus was punished for. Jesus suffered and died because of those things. And so if I look at Jesus with disdain, if I look at Jesus with indifference, if I look at Jesus and think, why would I need that? He's the one who was punished in my place. So I wouldn't have to be punished. And to reject him is the greatest crime in the universe. And the greatest crime calls for a great punishment. 
See, people don't realize that. Oh, rejecting Christ, what's that? Who's Christ? It doesn't matter. Trampling underfoot the Son of God. It's the greatest crime in the universe to reject the Son of God who, out of love, gave his life as a sacrifice for you and took your sins and my sins upon himself. To reject that, that's the highest crime in the universe. Now, as we close, the unforgivable sin then, again, is to reject the forgiver who bore the punishment for your sin and my sin. That, that's the unforgivable sin. You see, if, how can I be forgiven if I'm re- rejecting the forgiver? I, I can only be forgiven through this means. So if I'm rejecting the means, then it's, it's an unforgivable sin because there's the, the way to have it forgiven is through the blood of Jesus. Now, here's a question though. Why would someone reject forgiveness? You know, think about that. So God comes and he says, uh, I'm gonna forgive you. I love you. I'm gonna forgive you. Now, you would think that we would all just say, oh, thank you, God. That is so kind of you. That's so gracious of you. You're gonna forgive us. Oh, that's wonderful. Why would somebody reject forgiveness? There's only one reason why. And that's because they don't think they need to be forgiven. See, that's the, that's the problem. I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good person. Well, I understand that, you know, they probably need to be forgiven. But, you know, I mean, I might be, need to be forgiven a little bit. But, but I'm, I'm, this is the problem. People reject forgiveness because they don't really think that they're bad. And that's the deception. The heart is deceitful. See, we, we deceive ourselves, and that's what happens. People deceive themselves. And it's because they refuse to believe that they need it that they cannot obtain the forgiveness that's available, and so they then must die with a debt they'll be paying for eternity. It's an eternal debt. And eternity never ends. The debt never ends. The debt can never be paid. It's a horrible fate that no one ever need face because of the gospel. It's a horrible fate. It's a real thing. But no one ever need face it because of what Jesus did. So if, we, if, we, if that becomes our fate, it becomes our fate because we refuse to believe that we needed forgiveness. Now, I want to just do one more thing before we close here. I want to address one more thing. So someone says, you know, I, I just don't believe any of this stuff. I don't believe this. I don't believe there's a God. I don't believe there's a hell. I, I just flat out don't believe it, period. I'm not going to believe it. Okay, I want to ask you this. Do you believe you're going to die? No, I don't believe it. Well, you are. (laughs) It's a fact, right? But seriously, do you believe you're going to die? Okay, let's say you can see, yeah, I'm going to die. I'm going to ask you this question. Why are you going to die? 
Why are you going to die? And I'm not asking this from a medical standpoint. I'm asking it from a philosophical standpoint. Why is there even death itself? Why does death exist? You know, nobody's ever been able to answer that question. No philosopher has answered it. No school of philosophy has answered it. It is still a massive problem. And the way that a lot of people try to get around the problem is just to try to normalize it. Well, you know, it's just death is just what it is. And, you know, it's just part of life. And, you know, people say that when they're not dying or they don't have somebody close to them that's dying. But the reality is when somebody close to you dies or when you get a diagnosis that you're going to die, you don't want to die. You don't want to die. Now, some people want to die because they think dying is a deliverance from the torment they're in right now. Some people kill themselves and so forth. Uh, But that's a, a, a very small number of people. Most people don't want to die. And they don't think fondly of death. And regardless of how much effort has been put in by the atheistic community or whoever else, (coughs) you know, promotes these kind of ideas like, don't worry about it, death's cool, it's good, it's not a problem. I don't know, personally know anybody that's walking around going, well, you know, I'm going to die pretty soon and that's, you know, that's going to be cool. You know, I haven't died yet and I've been living a long time and I'm just kind of looking forward to the next thing, you know, to see what happens. Who do you know that's doing that? I don't know anybody that's doing that. Because the truth is, nobody is doing that. Because everybody's living with a fear of death and everybody lives with a sense like, you know, this really shouldn't happen. Everybody lives with that. Everybody lives with that sense. This shouldn't happen. Why? Well, the answer is, the reason why death exists itself is the answer. Because the Bible says, the Bible is the only place where you get an answer for why there's death. The Bible says death came because of sin. And you know, there is no other satisfactory explanation. The Bible tells us death came because of sin. And death is a reality. It's an inescapable reality. And Elon Musk and everybody else in Silicon Valley, uh, you know, they're they're not going to be able to alter that. It it is just a reality. So since that is a reality that the Bible says sin is the reason for death and that's why we die physically, the Bible also says sin is the reason for eternal death. So if we can see and experience and believe and know that the one is true, the logical next step would would be to say the other must be true as well. And so, we die because of sin. We physically die because of sin. We eternally die because of a refusal to take the remedy for sin, which is the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son. And so... Jesus warns about the one and only unforgivable sin. It is the sin of rejecting him. That is the one and only reason. All other sin will be forgiven. All other sin. Whatever you've done, no matter how dark and vile and evil and wicked it's been, it's all forgivable. I was talking to a friend actually this week and in conversation, 
he said, I committed my first homicide when I was 13 years old. And now that person is forgiven. And they're, they did their prison and you know, they did all of that and, 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 and they love Jesus and, and have received that forgiveness of sin. But that's, that's the depth of the forgiveness that the blood of Christ provides. All sin can be forgiven. The only one that can't is the sin of rejecting the forgiver. And so that's what Jesus warned them about. And that's what we need to consider today. All sin is forgivable. The only one that isn't is to reject the forgiver. The forgiver, of course, is Christ. And the gospel is that God sent Jesus to die in our place so our sins could be forgiven, so we could be reconciled to him, and so we could know him and live with him forever, eternally. That's the good news. And so, Lord, we thank you for the good news. And as we're studying here the gospel of Mark, the good news as Mark spelled it out for us, the good news of salvation through Jesus, cleansing of sin through the blood of Jesus, victory over death, eternal death through the blood of Jesus. Lord, thank you that you have given us the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Lord, I I would pray for anyone today either in this room or hearing my voice, Lord, anyone that has has not received you, anyone that has maybe even been resisting, oh Lord, that they would no longer resist. Anyone who's bought into the myth that there is no judgment in the future, Lord, may they just see the um, illogical position they've taken. And Lord, thank you that when we come to you, Whatever we've done, wherever we've been, Lord, you're able through your blood to wash and to cleanse us from every sin. And so do that for those who need to have it done today. And Lord, for those of us that have received that forgiveness, Lord, we thank you as we look at our own hearts, even uh, after we've been saved, Lord, we recognize that we're still sinful but we thank you that you love us in spite of that. And your grace and your blood cover that multitude of sins. And so guide us forward, we pray, to follow you, to serve you, and Lord, to be an advertisement for the wonderful gift of forgiveness that you offer. In Jesus' name.